Hey everybody, happy pandemic. I think we're getting close to wrapping up the trials and tribulations of Joe Alsip and life in Ventura in the late in the early 80s. And in our last episode, we just heard those letters to the editor about what was happening with the case. And of course, that we've got a whole church dragged into this. So I think, I, I had thought there were two, but I think there's actually three more sections. So I'm going to get those done for you. And then we're going to get back to what's going on with Joseph D'Angelo. We did get a message from Victim Services this week. Our hearing, the the hearing that was supposed to have happened this week on April 29th, we were supposed to be in court. That hearing has been pushed to the end of June. So if it's still happening, I mean, I we're going to see what's going to happen with this virus. But the end of June is when that hearing is. That's for the motion to dismiss in the demur. And then the preliminary hearing or pretrial, as I like to call it, is scheduled for August 14th, I think it's the 14th or the 17th. I'll get that um, specifically for you, but that's uh, due, that's mid-August. So again, we're still dependent on the virus and quarantine and what happens with sheltering and providing a lot of people don't start getting sick because everybody's coming out of their houses right now and some people are acting like lunatics. So I don't know if we're going to see another, another surge or not. have not heard anything from the jail I don't know if there's cases over there. I hope to goodness there aren't. But um, but we'll wrap this up and then I'll get into those motions. And then I have some good guests coming up too, which I'm working on. So that, that should um, help us fill the time while we're waiting to get back to court. Because of course, that's where my interest lies most is getting this man convicted. All right. So we're now back in Ventura in 1982. It is May 5th. Oh, gosh, we're almost contemporary. Um, May 5th, because it's May 2nd, right? Um, but, and we're going to talk, and, and the defense is presenting. So we're in court. Alsip hasn't taken the stand. We've talked a lot about the pastor. Richard Hanawalt has been pretty aggressive in his pursuit of justice for his client. And now we're going to learn a little bit more about what's going on with um, Joe and his alibi. And then I had mentioned that I need to provide for you the two uh, two photographs from this section that are handwritten notes from the Reverend, just so you could see what his notes look like. It's interesting because they publish them, literally publish them in the paper. So I want to, um, I will make sure if you are listening to this podcast, if you look at the description, there'll be a little link in there. I'll put a link in there so that you can go to see where these photographs are and see what these notes look like from that day, if that's how you roll. So yeah, there you go. But I always think it's interesting when there's actual artifacts. Uh, uh, there are some photographs from the articles. I might try to go layer those back in later, just take pictures of them. But um, in the meantime, I want to make sure you see those the notes from the Reverend. Here we go. This is Greg Zoroya. He's back and a business partner gives Alsip alibi. The day that Joseph Alsip Jr. was allegedly admitting to a minister his involvement in the murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith, he was actually at a Santa Paula construction site, according to testimony given Friday. Testimony by the same man this morning, Alsip's business associate, Chuck, Charles Gilliard, sorry, I almost called him Chuck because that's how I knew him. Charles Gilliard also provided an alibi for the defendant on the afternoon of the day the Smiths were murdered. Police believe Smith and his wife were bludgeoned to death in the bedroom of their home 
on March 13th. Gilliard testified this morning that Alsip was in his company until 5.30 on that day, 5.30 in the evening. The critical testimony differs directly with the prosecution's contention that Alsip committed the murders and then made admissions about them to Reverend Don Michael on May 21st. Alsip is in the 11th day of his preliminary hearing, during which a judge must decide if there is enough evidence to warrant a trial. Michael has testified that on the morning of May 21st, Alsip visited his office in the counseling center where the Ventura, counseling center of the Ventura Missionary Church, where Michael is an associate pastor. Michael testified that Alsip, distraught and intoxicated, admitted that he was at the Ventura home of the Smiths when they were beaten to death. The minister testified that Alsip said he had been Miss Smith's lover and that he was made to love made love to her in the afternoon of her death. Michael also related that Alsip reportedly hated Smith for cheating him in business. I need to ask Dr. Speth, because they took the sample of DNA from Charlene, and of course it was D'Angelo's DNA, but I don't think they found any other DNA, including even from my dad. So uh, I need to ask Dr. Speth about that. Okay, mental note. Smith and Alsip were business partners in a development firm that broke up three months before Smith's death. Gilliard was also part of that firm and revealed this morning that he too was questioned by police in connection with the murders, but he was never accused. Last week, he testified that when the business split up, the portion retained by Alsip and himself lost money. So Chuck and um, Joe's side of the business lost money. I, of course, have no idea what happened to my dad and Bob Placencia's side of the business. This morning, Gilliard testified on the day of the murder, he spent the afternoon with Alsip in their company office on Seward Avenue in Ventura. He said they left the office at 4.30 and walked across the street to a bar. Gillard explained that he last saw Alsip at 5.30 that day, and it was understanding that the defendant was going bowling. Did you know Joe to be a bowler? asked defense attorney Richard Hanawalt. I know he tried, Gilliard said, prompting laughter in the courtroom. Tuesday, Hanawalt called Gilliard to testify that Alsip showed up at a Santa Paula construction site at 8.40 a.m. May 21. Michael said his meeting with Alsip took place at 8.30 a.m. Holy smokes, 8.30 a.m. and he's saying he was drunk and disheveled at 8.30 in the morning? Wow. Okay. I didn't realize it was that early. Alsip and Gilliard were involved in the construction of a mobile home park called Hillview Estates on Telegraph Road. The project was just two weeks old on May 21st, and Gilliard testified that as supervisor of the project, he kept exact records regarding times and names. He said he met with Alsip and a third man, Wayne Rowland, that morning on the job site. At 10 a.m. that day, Gilliard and Alsip were photographed at the job site by a Santa Paula Chronicle newspaper photographer. The picture was later published. Hmm. So there's literally a picture of him there at 10. Okay. Alsip, Gilliard, Roland, and Ed Skiffstrom, another business partner, had lunch together that day, Gilliard said. He said Alsip left the site at 4.30 p.m. Gilliard also testified in detail about Alsip's whereabouts on May 22nd. The day is significant only because Michael's handwritten, handwritten notes concerning the meeting with Alsip showed a date of May 22nd, although Michael later corrected himself and said the meeting was the day before. Gilliard testified that Alsip showed up at the job site at 8.30 a.m., remained at the site until he, Gilliard, and Skiffstrom met with the company attorneys in Ventura at 10. Gilliard further described how there was an accident that afternoon at a closed-down restaurant owned by the firm in Ventura. At the restaurant, which used to be known as John's at the Beach on Seaward, some fire extinguishing material accidentally poured out of a container and the fire department was called. To corroborate Gilliard's testimony, Roland said that he saw Elsip at the job site May 21 and 22, 
But on cross-examination by District Attorney Pete Casores, Deputy District Attorney Pete Casores, Roland could not remember seeing Alsip the morning of the 22nd, and the time varied as to the morning of the 21st. Casores pointed out that Roland refused to talk to a district attorney's investigator during a previous occasion. Roland admitted this, saying, I didn't feel it would help Joe's case any. Before Gilliard's testimony Tuesday, Michael was on the stand for the second time in two weeks. Hanawalt had a difficult time questioning the minister because of restriction placed on him by Judge Bruce Clark, who was presiding over the hearing. In response to objections by Casores, Clark prevented Hanawalt from questioning Michael on material that had been covered during questioning the week before. Clark cautioned Hanawalt at one point not to embarrass or harass the minister and even ordered him away from standing near Michael and told him to sit back at his council table. Several of members of the church have attended the hearing regularly. Okay, so there's so the, the, now we're going to get into the minister's testimony, which is um, well, it's the next day, and I don't know why Greg. This, the following story. Oh, here we go. The following story. This is from Greg. Mark. This is May 6, nineteen eighty two. There's a little um, italic, so I don't have to do the setup. He does it for us. The following story is based on preliminary hearing testimony, interviews, and police investigative documents released Wednesday. Wednesday, by Richard Hanawalt. Okay, so this is what he couldn't say in court, I suppose. So this is Hanawalt. Um, you know how they say you can try a case in the in the press, so I suspect that's what's going to happen here because this is one of the thing a good things a strategy a good defense attorney uses, right? You you want to sway, you want to influence public opinion, you want to create the narrative, you want to make sure that you have the story. So that's what's happening here, and this is by Greg Zoria. Minister's testimony startling but flawed. To the five police detectives who met at the Ventura Police Department the night of March 25th, 1981, so, okay, a year after the murder, the words they heard from a soft-spoken minister must have sounded like an answer to a homicide investigator's prayer. After considering a number of implications, I have concluded that the only real honest thing I can do with myself is to share what information I know, the Reverend Donald Michael told them. What followed was an account of a counseling session between Michael and a Ventura real estate agent, Joe Alsip, that Michael had said had taken place 10 months before. Michael quoted Alsip as saying, I come today and I need some kind of absolution or whatever you do to forgive a person. I have to get this off my mind. I think I'm going crazy, Michael then told the police. And he said it, it had to do with some murders. The police interview with the minister was over in 20 minutes. Though there is no indication of how the detectives reacted, they must have felt they had a sure breakthrough on their hands. Because what they were hearing was the first hardcore evidence providing a motive, an alleged admission, and a suspect in a sensational case that had stymied them for more than a year, the bludgeoning slayings of Lyman and Charlene Smith. Now they had what seemed like really firm evidence. Waivers signed by both Michael and Alsip, who apparently suspected the minister had nothing detrimental to say, cleared away any clergyman penitent privilege, allowing the minister to talk about his meetings with Alsip. True, the information itself wasn't new. Investigators had been privy to these facts ever since the summer of 1980, when the minister first told police that he knew something about the Smith case. But before the waivers were signed, it was essentially off-the-record information, useful only as a tool to help them put the right questions to the right people. 
The difference on that March night was that Michael was finally talking for the record. It had been a long time coming, and even with it secured, another eight months of follow-up investigation would pass before a satisfied district attorney's office filed first-degree murder charges against the 34-year-old Alsip, a one-time business associate of Smith's. That hearing and that test are nearing conclusion. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It would be more than a year before the evidence Michael provided would face its first major test during the preliminary hearing for Alsip. Here we go. That hearing and that test are nearing conclusion at municipal court today. The The credibility of Michael is the key. His accounts of Alsip's alleged admissions are revealing and provocative, but there are clear-cut weaknesses and inconsistencies. The defense attorney for Alsip contends that the crucial interview between his client and Michael never took place, and the entire story is a figment of the minister's imagination. He points to its weaknesses as proof. What follows is a detailed account of Michael's version and the inconsistencies which may ultimately render it useless. The evidence was born in the counseling center of the Ventura Missionary Church on High Point Drive, a few hundred feet from the Smith residence. According to police interviews with Michael on March 25th and 26th, the minister said that that Alsip first visited the center with his wife Mary on May 13th, 1980, to discuss their marriage problems. During that first meeting, Joe asked if his wife could be excused and he had some personal things that he'd like to share, Michael said. He started talking about being so involved in business dealings that it was providing embarrassing, impossible to complete. Okay, it was it was proving embarrassing, impossible to complete, and also had gotten involved so completely in his sexual life that he, I guess I ruined both my marriage and my business, Everything I see looks so blurred that I don't, I don't really see anything clearly. I can't make sense out of what's going on. Michael described him as confused and under extreme pressure. Alsip returned days later to meet alone with the minister, Michael said. The following are excerpts from Michael's comments pertaining to that second, more crucial meeting. These are quotes, guys. Um, first one. He said it has to do with what took place in that house just across the street. And he said the death of Mr. and Mrs. Smith and I, I'm sure at that point I really expressed some severe shock. He said, my wife is nearly driving me crazy asking questions about my involvement in the case. He said, if one thing I could get free was the sounds of her screams, if I didn't have that, I don't think this thing would bother me. And he just gave a little slight description of her having, of having intercourse with her later in the day, earlier in the day. He talked about some sexual involvement with Mrs. Smith previously on some occasions. He was convinced that had both of them lived that she would not have continued to stay with Mr. Smith and he felt that she was devoted enough to him that he would have won her away easily. I'm going to just tell you guys, this is a little hard to read because I just know Charlene and Joe did not have an affair, but okay. In one point of the conversation, he said, in one way, he deserved what he got. And I took that to mean he was talking about Mr. Smith. Then Joe made some references to a real estate dispute that had to do with dissolving a partnership in some way. And then again, like he was trying to really give a reason for what he was talking about. And he said, the issue simply had to be settled. He said, we turned the whole house upside down. I don't think there was anything left that could be traced. He said, I'm sure that we, we covered the tracks and we never could be discovered in any way. 
The language was always plural, we, indicating that there was an accomplice. He said, if they would have known that I revealed this information, my life probably wouldn't be worth anything. According to a report about the interview with Michael conducted with the district attorney's investigator in October, Michael stated that Lyman Smith was the primary cause of him, Alsip, losing a million dollars. He was sure Alsip said a million. The report says during the weeks before the interview, Mary Alsip came to the church and confronted him, Michael, with a list of questions. She implied that he was confused about what Joe had said, and she told him at this time she knew Joe was involved in some way, but he was not directly involved in the murder. The various inconsistencies in Michael's explanations about dates and times, note-taking, and the history of these notes that were later used to refresh his memory have been vigorously explored by the defense counsel for Alsip. The series of memoranda written by a district attorney investigator and obtained through legal channels in the defense were admitted late into evidence Wednesday. When placed side by side with the current testimony in the preliminary hearing, many inconsistencies are evident. Oh, shoot, these notes are not from the minister. These are the notes from the police department, I guess. I'm not sure. Uh, hang on, we'll, we'll get it. Oh, no, these are Reverend Michael's notes. Okay, sorry, I'm looking up. They're on the same page. I just um, wasn't sure if the, if Greg was talking about he was going to show the police notes, but these are actually Reverend Michael's notes that you'll see pictures of. Michael's notes concerning the... Um, Michael's notes concerning the Alsip meeting reflected that it took place on May 22nd when he was interviewed by police on March 26th, 1981, a year later. He said, I believe it was May or May 22nd, 1980, and he said the time of day was 3 or 4 p.m. But during an interview with the district attorney's investigator, Richard Haas, Michael said that after reviewing an appointment calendar, he stated that the interview was probably on May 30, 21 at 8.30 a.m. So, okay, so we got a gap there in the time, daytime continuum, time-space continuum. After police interviewed Michael on March 25th, 1981, okay, so a year later, he left the session with the promise to return in the morning after reviewing some notes. The next day during a second interview, he told police, I took an opportunity to get some, my, some of my old notes on the case. In October 15, 1981, with interview with Haas, with Haas, who was the, the district attorney's detective, Michael stated that the time of the counseling session did not make, um, at the time of the counseling session, he did not make any notes. A couple of days afterwards, he wrote up some rough notes on what he recalled of the conversation. Haas interviewed him again on December 1st and again and asked Michael if he had notes of the May 21 meeting. He was not sure if he made notes immediately following the interview. Michael stated that this was his particular that this particular session was not an ordinary session, that he was not prepared for it and may have forgotten to write any notes. Michael testified last week during Alsip's preliminary, sorry, I'm, I'm having a hard time believing that the guy comes in and says he might be responsible for a murder and the screams and he can't stop the screams and he just didn't write notes. Like you literally, those are the exact times if you're in counseling, you would absolutely write the notes. You want it to be as contemporaneous and as um, thoughtful and as much of your memory as possible. But okay, we continue. Michael testified last week that Alsip's preliminary at Alsip's preliminary hearing that they wrote some temporary notes the same day of the counseling session with Alsip. 
The first notes were made following the session itself before I started in another, another appointment, Michael said. A week or so after the meeting, he transcribed the temporary notes into a more permanent form and destroyed the temporary sheets of paper. He also recalled making a tape recording version of his notes a week or so after transcribing the permanent written notes. Michael's version of where the crucial notes in the tape recording were kept were pl- and who placed them there and what security devices had been used, such as safes and locked cabinets, differed completely with information obtained by Haas from other church of- officials. During an executive church board meeting last week, members questioned and at times openly disagreed with Michael's explanation of where the material or who was kept or who would have helped Michael store it. When asked by one church official during the meeting that happened to the uh, what happened to the envelope containing the notes and tape during a period of early 1981, at the time of the interview, Michael was unable to give any logical explanation to the board members, Haas wrote. Um, okay, this article ends, but let me take you into these notes. So essentially what I'll post are these two photographs of the notes. And the first one is, says, first appointment, 51380, both husband and wife, presenting problem, can our marriage be salvaged? Shared what appeared to be a pattern of infidelity for husband. Excuse the wife, Joe, been very, been describing a very, um, sorry, began describing a very confused person, so involved in business dealings and sexual life, everything looks blurred, wish to go away and start all over where he's not known. Not much specifies detail of involvements. And then there's a, it says, some, there's a date that's circled, but it's hard to tell what the date is, but it says 80. I can't tell. Uh, yeah. Next, wanted release, needs absolution for my sin. I can't tell you all the details. Has to do with death of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. No more than I wish they knew. They were driving me crazy asking about my, my wife is drive, drives me crazy asking about my involvement. In one way, he deserved what he got. He uses power over people. Some reference has been made, and this is the next page. Some reference has been made to a real dispute over dissolving some partnership. The issue had to be settled. No real estate. Now with the, oh, his writing really gets bad now. Now with the economy like it is and the business gone, I don't know where I turn. I try to set those, sorry, this is in dark. It's hard to read. I try to set those sounds out of, I try to get those sounds out of my head. I think my head will burst sometimes. People everywhere bug me. If I only could forget, but I can't seem. We turn the whole house upside down. I can't think I left. I don't think I left anything there that could be traced. When the memory of the association with Mrs. Smith was recalled, he froze. No further detail. He simply said he had to get away for a while. So that's the note. Those are the notes. But what I have done handwriting analysis. Um, you know me I'm weird uh, and so what I think is interesting it's printing so that's not typically what you analyze but the nature of these notes uh, the two different pages juxtaposed are really interesting because they're they're very different and in one place I mean the second page of notes starts to look a bit um, what's our favorite word decompensating it starts to look like he's decompensating a bit so uh, I'll be interested to see what you guys think when you take a look at these pictures Okay, so now we're going to get, let me get into the, what, where we are next. It's May 6th. So that was a kind of summary article written by Greg about the minister. 
But let's get back to what's happening in the courtroom. And this doesn't have a byline on this one. I bet it's Greg, though. Okay, defense tells whereabouts of Alsip on day of slayings. The defense Wednesday carefully pieced together the whereabouts of Joseph Alsip Jr. on the day Lyman and Charlene Smith were brutally slain. Hannah Walt called four witnesses to testify at Alsip's hearing um, for the client to count, account for his client's time on March 13, that's that, that day, from the early afternoon almost till midnight. Sometime during the night of that date, Smith and his wife were beaten to death in their bedroom. Alsip was a former business partner, and, ju- and Judge Bruce Clark must soon decide if there is enough evidence to warder- warrant ordering Alsip to stand trial on murder charges. The estimated time of the killing varies, ranging from the evening of March 13th to possibly the early hours of the following morning. Their bodies were not discovered until March 16th. We, of course, know, now that we know D'Angelo's MO, it was probably absolutely um, the early hours of the next morning. The pathologist who performed the autopsy on the couple estimated that 20 minutes to an hour passed from between the time of their last meal and when they were attacked. The, oh, I remember reading about that in the autopsy report. There's this whole thing about how your body stops digesting food as soon as you're in a fight or flight situation. I, rem- I, I had gotten a copy of the whole transcript of this um, preliminary hearing when I was, I, I want to say when this is over, so like 1983 maybe. And I went through it and I read through his autopsy report and it, it was fascinating. I It makes perfect sense to me that we do stop digesting food when we're scared. Like, you you know, that pit in the, uh, that feeling in the pit of your stomach. And um, so I was interesting. That's how they do this time of death. How long since they've eaten is because they don't aren't digesting anymore. Okay. The a family friend testified last week that she called the Smith residence at 6.50 and was told by Smith they were snacking. Whether Smith was referring to their evening meal or simply an early evening snack is not known, but it does little to resolve the question of time of death. By the way, in our family, when you're snacking, that means you're having a, a deconstructed dinner where everybody's fending for themselves. And in my dad's world, which was some of the best New Year's days ever, he for some reason he loved and it was a tradition he would go buy all kinds of there used to be these little mini breads i don't know how to describe them but you can get them sometimes in fancy delis now they're little loaves of bread but all different flavors and my favorite was dark was pumpernickel i loved pumpernickel um we would get dark rye and regular rye and then he would put out all kinds of little meats um deli meats and all kinds of cheeses and that would be New Year's Day, and we'd essentially have an open house back in the days of the 60s and 70s when people would go visiting. On New Year's Day, there was always a spread. Also, my dad loved to be a bartender. He loved making fancy drinks, and um, everything was less expensive, I guess, back then. So snacking in our house meant it was going to be, it's meats and cheeses and crackers or breads, and maybe if you were lucky, you had pastrami and mustard. Oh, now I'm really hungry. But that's, so that's what snacking means. So it's interesting because they're thinking another snack, but that's in our family, that's what snacking was. It was their different kind of dinner, which made sense to me. In addition, uh, a key prosecution witness, the Reverend Don Michael of Ventura, has testified that Alsip allegedly admitted having intercourse with Mrs. Smith on the afternoon of March 13th. Consequently, 
but we know she was with Rick Atwood, so I don't understand. Consequently, Hannawell attempted to show his client's whereabouts from the early afternoon of March 13th through the rest of the day. Wednesday, he called Chuck Gilliard, a business associate of Alsip's, and he spent the afternoon with him at the company office. The office is near um, the south end of Seward Avenue, and Gilliard said they accounted for Alsip's time up until 5.30. Laura Clinton, who lives with her husband along the same section as Seward, testified that Alsip visited her, visited her sometime between 5.30 and 6 and stayed until about 8.30 or 8.45. Mrs. Clinton, who is the daughter-in-law of Alsip's former attorney, Paul Clinton, said she could remember the day because she bought and filled out birthday cards on the 13th. I'd like to see Joe get off. Sure, he's innocent, Mrs. Clinton said during the cross-examination. Two members of a bowling league were called to testify for the remainder of that up evening up until 11.15. I'm laughing because it's the bowling league. Until 11.15 or 11.30, Alsip and his wife, Mary, were bowling at Buena Lanes in Ventura. Bowling team captain Richard Stewart, Stewart, whose bowling team played and beat Elsip and his wife that night, testified that, I guess he doesn't bowl very well, testified that Elsip didn't seem to be in any unusual mood. He was like myself, was unhappy. He, like myself, was unhappy about his first game, Stewart said. Hannawald introduced bowling league records to verify that Elsips took part in the bowling that night. The three in the three games. Oh my God! This is so Ventura. In the three games, Alsip scored a thir- a one thirty four, a two twenty five, and a one forty nine. Um, those are I can get a one thirty four. Okay, especially if you put those rails up. Proceedings were scheduled to start late today, since Casores will be busy in another courtroom during the morning. Both sides hope to finish today, but Hanawalt has two controversial witnesses he plans to call. A former associate of Michael's who had a professional conflict with the minister and a psychiatrist who has observed Michael's testimony, reviewed reports, and will testify about his opinion of the minister's mental state. I can't wait. Because of the significance of Michael's testimony, he has been a primary target for the defense case. Late Wednesday, a district attorney's investigator was called by the defense to testify about inconsistency in Michael's story. The testimony was precluded when Consoris agreed to allow some point of the investigator's pertinent memoranda to be entered as evidence. Basically saying, yeah, I'll just, um, gosh darn, there's a word for that. But it basically, he's just saying, I'll accept it. That's fine. Don't, I don't want to talk about it out loud. Just put it in the documents. The documents show inconsistency in Michael's rendition of dates and times, the creation of crucial notes, and where he placed those notes. A major prosecution contention is that when the development firm, which Alsip and Smith, as well as Gilliard, belonged to, split up in 1979, Smith proved to be the winner in the dissolution and Alsip and Gilliard the losers. A real estate consultant who worked for the firm was called to testify for the defense that the dissolution was harmonious. But on cross-examination, the witness, Charles Rudolph Longo, and the company known as Gap Development, had always said that um, said it had always been poorly managed. I didn't think any one of them, the five men who ran the company, including Alsip Smith and Gilliard, had knowledge of management enough to take on another task. You think they were all equally inept, Kasoris asked. Absolutely, Longo replied. I take it around, then you weren't running around investing your own money in these enterprises, Kasoris said. That's for sure, Longo answered. <sighs> wow, there we go. It's lovely. On May 7th, we moved to um, Alsip finally testifying. So Joe is on the stand. 
it has been 12, 13 days that this thing has gone on and he's finally going to take the stand. And this is Greg reporting and we'll wrap this one up after this because then I, I'm just trying to chunk this to the end and then, um, and then we'll get into what happens after Al takes the stand. This is going to get crazy. Do you have any idea who killed Lyman and Charlene Smith? Attorney Richard Hanawalt asked Joseph Alsip Thursday afternoon. No, I do not. In a rare legal defense move, Hanawalt surprised a courtroom audience Thursday by calling his client to testify on his own behalf during a preliminary hearing to determine whether Alsip will be tried for murder. This case is different, the attorney said after Thursday's proceeding. The bottom line is, if you've got nothing to hide, the traditional rule about not calling defendant doesn't apply, he said. Alsip is accused of the first-degree murder of Lyman and Charlene Smith. In a murder case already riddled with stories about romantic involvement, yet another affair was revealed this morning when Alsip testified about an intimacy with a woman named Sandy Strauss. Deputy District Attorney Pete Casoris, who began an extensive cross-examination of Alsip this morning, asked about the affair to bring out what Alsip was doing the night before he allegedly met and made some admissions about the murder to a Ventura minister. Were you then having an affair with her? Casoris asked. Yes, I was, Alsip said. Alsip testified that he spent the night, May 20, 1980, with Miss Strauss, and Casoris asked if this caused him to suffer mental turmoil the next morning. Alsip said it did not, and that he was not in such a condition. He was not in such condition the next day. He denied meeting with the minister, the Reverend Donald Michael, the next day, or even making admissions. Alsip has testified that he and his wife Mary met with Michael on May 13. At that time, Alsip said he did speak to Michael alone for a time. During questioning by Casoris this morning, Alsip said that he talked about his personal problems, both marital and business, with the minister. I said that part of my problem was that I was a suspect in the Smith case, Alsip said. Alsip explained that he knew that because of what he had heard through the grapevine. Mind you, it's a small town. It would not have taken a very big grapevine. During his questioning, Casoris ran through all of the various details Michael had provided police about the alleged admissions. Alsip denied that he had made each comment. When asked if he had ever told Michael or anyone whether Smith was a powerful man, Alsip said, I have stated that as a personality type trait of Mr. Smith, he was a very powerful person to be around. I mean, his personality was overwhelming. But Alsip said he never meant that in a resentful way. In reference to another crucial statement made by Michael, Casoris asked, did you ever have sexual intercourse with Charlene Smith? No, I did not, Alsip responded. His preliminary hearing is now on its 13th day in front of Judge Bruce Clark, who is presiding over the hearing. Most hearings are almost perfunctory proceedings during which defendants are almost always held to answer and the defense attorneys usually present no evidence at all. But Hanawalt has taken the offensive in this case, calling some 36 witnesses in an effort to counter every aspect of the prosecution case, provide alibis for significant times and dates, and even allow the defendant to deny the crime. Hanawell has called witnesses who verified Alsip's whereabouts from where the early afternoon from whereabouts from the early afternoon of March 13th, believed to be the day of the murder, until midnight of that day. Since there is some speculations the Smiths were killed after midnight, Hanawalt said he also called Alsip to testify what he did after that time. 
Alsip, who sounded tense but confident on the stand, said that he was at home asleep with his wife that night after in the evening of bowling. He also testified about visiting the Smith's residence the night before the murders. The defense contends that it could have been the night when Alsip left fingernips, fingerprints on a goblet later found in the house by police investigators. However, Alsip does not remember touching a goblet. Alsip also said that after the murders, when police focused attention on him, he cooperated with virtually every police request up through and including the time he signed a waiver allowing police to interview Michael about his counseling session. I didn't care if they talked to Don Michael, Alsip said. Michael, 59, has been a target of vigorous defense records to discredit his testimony. One of Hannah Welt's most impressive assaults on that testimony came Thursday when he called Michael's former associate S.R. Brick and that's B-R-I-K, McDill, a professional family therapist who works in Oxnard. McDill worked with Michael at the Family Counseling Center of the Ventura Missionary Church. My opinion as to Michael's honesty and veracity is that there are some tendencies Don has which would compromise his descriptions to the point where I would have to question the truth or honesty of his descriptions, Dill testified. McDill, sorry. McDill, who described himself as one of only 400 counselors in the state licensed to assess the ability of other counselors, said from the stand that he was afraid of being misquoted by the press and asked if he could be questioned in the judge's chambers. Clark refused the request, saying the hearings are designed to be open. In other comments about Michael, McDill said that in cases where there would be an ounce of drama or an ounce of intrigue or an ounce of excitement, Don, I believe, would have a tendency of adding two and two and getting seven. If one were to say Don seven, he might say, well, okay, five, but he wouldn't get closer to four than five, said McDill. Well, that's that's not what you want people to come talk to you about. <sighs> okay, until next time, folks, when things start to get come together. Let's just say things start to come together. I'll see you then.